Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. Welcome again to our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We are well into our study, and in fact, in this program, we are going to be at chapter 20 uh, of the Gospel of Matthew. In the previous program, uh, we, uh, the last verse of, of chapter 19, verse 30 said, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And this is a kind of a perplexing little saying uh, for a lot of people. Uh, they're not quite sure exactly what's really going on here. But I think it's going to be explained so that everyone will understand here in the chapter that follows. So holding that thought, let's see what chapter 20 uh, says concerning it. So at beginning of verse 1, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, that's a day's wage, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others idle in the marketplace. And those he, to those he said, you too go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Now, the third hour would be like 9 o'clock in the morning. In other words, the, early, the other ones started early at 6, and these people are now starting to work at 9. Verse 5, again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. So he met people at noontime, and then he met people at about 3 o'clock. And he hired each of these groups. And about the 11th hour he went out, and went only with only one hour to work for the day, and he found others standing, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said, Go, then you too go into the vineyard. And when the evening had come, and the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. Bring the last will be first, and the first will be last. All right, you getting this? He's given a parable about that. So he brings in the people who got started at the 11th hour. They got started about 5 o'clock and only had to work one hour. And he paid them a full day's wage. The same amount he agreed to with the very first group, a full day's wage. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, and they also received one denarius. And when they had received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These men have only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and he said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way, but I wish to give to the last man the same as, as to you. So let's just stop with this for a moment. He said, if a man hires a man and they both agree 
then that is the proper wage. And the man who does the hiring, if he wishes to give more to another, that's his business. And the first guy does not get to come over and lay claim to, well, you're not being fair with me because you gave him a little more. And, and, and all that is is envy. That is not righteousness. That is not correct. And by the way, let's, let's go a step further with this. God, in his principles, is not fair. He's just. He's full of mercy and grace. You don't want God to be fair like a man. If God was fair, every one of us would be dead already. We'd all be dead and judged if we were being fair. It turns out that we really want God to just be just, and we want to receive grace and mercy from Him. We want Him to do, choose and do good to us, whether we deserved it or not. And, and we actually like the stuff that we don't deserve, whether it be grace, good things done to us, or mercy, you know, kept from punishment and harm. Um, and that's where we really want the Lord to be. And that's really what's taking place here. So let me offer this as the first expression. Many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. Consider with me, um, I'm going to take a, a couple of men. I'm going to say that here's a young man who has comes to the age of accountability. He commits his life to the Lord. And he begins to serve the Lord, and he serves the Lord all of his life. He gets all the way up to 70 years of age, and he's been serving the Lord from his youth. And let's say that the last year of this second man's life, who as a young man did not serve the Lord, spent his whole life doing whatever he wanted to do, including sin and so forth, but in the last year of his life, when he turned 69, he called upon the Lord and he asked for forgiveness and God granted him salvation. Now, who's going to get eternal life? Well, both men are on the path to eternal life. Would it be right for the man who served the Lord all of his life to complain about the man who only began to serve the Lord in the last year of his life? Would that be appropriate? Of course not. Well, then why are we arguing about wages then? Eternal life is far more valuable. You know, and that's essentially what the Lord has said to us. No matter at what station you're at, first or last, you're going to be brought up to the level where you receive eternal life as each man made agreement with the master. And so, um, by the way, the other fellow who committed his life to the Lord, I can assure you, had a much more pleasant life uh, than the other fellow, for whatever that's worth. But the fact of the matter is, we're all striving for the goal of eternal life. We're all looking for that reward. And I have, I have no twinge in me, a problem, of me serving the Lord for most of my life and some guy at the last moment accepting the Lord and, and him being in the kingdom. I have no problem with the master doing that. More power to him and congratulations to the fellow who got saved. That's part of what this thing is about. 
That's not socialism. That's about the authority and the power of the master to decide who's in the kingdom and the agreements that we make with him. So let's go a little bit farther here. Uh, verse 14, um, he says to the man, the, the men who are complaining, take what is yours, go your way, but I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it law, not lawful for me to do as I wish and what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus, the last shall be first and the first last. That's what that expression is about. It's about the Lord chooses and the Lord has the authority and the power if he wishes to take the last and make him the first if he wants. Or he can take the first and make him the last. What you should be thankful for is that we even get to be counted with the Lord. That's what we should be thankful for. Verse 17, And when Yeshua was about to go up to Jerusalem, remember uh, in the previous program he'd made the trip to Capernaum down into um, the, there beyond the Jordan, and he was there near Jericho, uh, but on the other side. And now he's coming up this way. He's getting ready to go up to Jerusalem, which means he crosses Jordan. He's going to go past Jericho. Um, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. He's speaking in the third person. He's not saying, I, this is what I'm going to do. He's saying, this is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. He kind of stepping back from himself is explaining the situation to the disciples. Now, this is a very interesting uh, thing because it's very clear by the gospel writer, Matthew. They were told in advance of going to Jerusalem what was going to happen. Yet when they got to Jerusalem, they had great struggles with what was going on. If you remember, in the course of being arrested, they, all the, the disciples fled. And there was a question about whether or not he was resurrected and the, you know, the whole resurrection story that we'll hear in the future. Um, and, and, I, and the gospel writer is saying, you know, the Lord did tell us this beforehand. Now, I think the reason why that is so interesting is because this is about his first coming. By the way, Yeshua is planning on coming back uh, a second time. And uh, he's had a lot to say about that, of how that's going to work out. Like in this case, he told me, he said, look, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and I'm going to get arrested and I'm going to be uh, facing the chief, the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to condemn me and then I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock and scourge me. They're going to crucify me. But on the third day, I'll be raised up. <clears throat> That's quite a bit of detail about what was getting ready to happen. And in the same way, Yeshua has given us quite a bit of detail about what's getting ready to happen when he comes the second time. The basic parameters of what he has said, he said, we're going to come to the end of the ages. There's going to be this one generation that will be at the end of the ages. And when these things begin to take place, that generation will not pass away until all is fulfilled. In other words, one generation is going to see all this take place. 
and there's going to be issues that will lead up to the Great Tribulation, then there's going to be a Great Tribulation, and in the days immediately following the Great Tribulation, the Son of Man will return, and that will be resurrected to go to the kingdom, just like Yeshua was resurrected after the third day. So it, we, we have the basic parameters of the second coming, just like Yeshua gave to his disciples about his, what was going to happen to him the first time. Now let's step back for a moment and let's ask ourselves, those disciples that heard this before they're making the trip up to Jerusalem, do you think they really truly understood what Yeshua had said, or do you think they simply accepted the words but didn't know how to process them and didn't know, really understand what was going to happen? Well, I think it's uh, the latter. I think they heard the words that Yeshua said, but I think they, they didn't quite process them. By the way, I see the same pattern taking place in this last generation. I'm convinced that the Lord is going to be coming very soon and that we're, we're going to see the days before the Great Trib, and we're going to see the Great Trib, and we're going to go through the Great Tribulation, and then we're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. There's going to be a resurrection, and we're going to be raised, and then we're going to be in the kingdom. God's going to judge His enemies, and we're going to be in the kingdom with Him. And the whole time frame uh, of there. Some people speculate it's not greater than seven years. I, by the way, I don't really disagree with that, although in this last generation we see a lot of prophetic signs telling us we're coming to the end of the age all throughout my, my lifetime. And in particular in the later days that we've seen, we see the signs profoundly being shown to us. Are we like the disciples in that we hear the things about the coming of the Lord and we think it's all going to work out just fine. Do we think that Peter really understood the words? No, he was saying, no, you know, uh, I'm not going to let anybody arrest you. I'll, I'll stand up for you. And then, you know, he got rebuked by the Lord. You know, it's not about you, Peter. I know brethren who know about the prophecies. They know the promise that the Lord has said that He will come back, but they're living like it's still some time off. And as a result, anybody who speaks to present situations and how it's leading to that, uh, they they don't realize it's closer to them than they than they than it is, or excuse me, they it's closer to them than they realized. The disciples are going to go up in Jerusalem, and they're only going to be there for a couple of days. They're going to have the Passover, and at the Passover, they didn't realize that's the night he's going to get arrested. And by the way, interestingly enough, the start of the Great Tribulation is at a Passover, and a future Passover. And we have a lot of people who are getting ready to go to Passover, and they have no sense of what this one particular Passover could produce, that it could be the start of the Great Tribulation, the, the, the prophecies of the return of the Lord. So in my heart of hearts, you know, having studied this a long time, having paid attention to in my generation the signs of the end, I've, when I have read this passage, I've said, Lord, make sure that I pay attention to what, when you tell me things in advance, 
help me to understand them better. Because uh, if I'd have been with one of the disciples there, what they needed to pray was, Lord, help us to understand that so we'll be prepared and oriented to uh, deal with what's going to happen. I'm not sure all the disciples were prepared very well you know, for it. So he gives this little explanation in the third person about what's going to really happen. And suddenly the, the topic shifts. In verse 20 it says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with their sons, bowing down and making a request of him, and said to her, What do you wish? And she said, Command that your kingdom, uh, these two sons of mine, may sit, one on your right hand, one on your left. But Yeshua answered and said, You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, We are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand and on my left, that is not mine to give, for it is those which, to whom it has been prepared by my Father. Yeshua, he got confronted with, command in your kingdom this to be done. And even knowing he will be the Lord of lords and the King of kings and he will be in charge, he still defers to the authority of his Father. And he takes the humble approach. That the Lord will decide who sits where. The first will be last, the last will be first, and the Lord, the master, will decide where you sit. Regardless of what you've done or you think you've done, he will decide. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Yeshua called them to himself, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise over them. Is it not so among you that whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whosoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave? And just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." What he's basically saying is the way men think is if you go first, well, then you must be in higher rank. And by the way, in, in the world, that's the way things do work. You know, in the, in the discussion amongst men alone, why, you know, you're looking for the most, more prestigious position, that means you have it over someone else. And that's what they're pursuing. That is not what the servant of God does. That's not what a bondservant does. The bondservant is looking for the opportunity to serve. He's not looking for what is the position that he will have. And we have had many, many examples, uh, you know, in this life where we've seen those that were true servants of God, and we honor them and we respect them greatly. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, their testimony was they were looking to serve the kingdom uh, for the most part. One fellow that comes to mind to me that I'm, I'm sure everybody's going to know about is a man named Billy Graham. Billy Graham became very motivated to serve the Lord to preach the gospel. The Lord used him powerfully to go to many nations and so forth. And while he did build an organization where other people could work and cooperate with one another, it's, clear, it's fair to say Billy Graham did not seek out 
to be in a high position. The reason why presidents would call for him so he could come pray with them is because they saw within him a humble man who loved the Lord. And that was how he was regarded uh, with high esteem. The same thing is true for all of us. If you, if you really are interested in high esteem, humble yourself and serve others. You want to be liked um, in an organization where you're at. Be the servant of the others. Help the others. One of the things I have taught in management and leadership is that your job, <clears throat> your job is not to uh, make your position greater. Your job is to make your boss highly successful. Your job is also to make all of your subordinates highly successful. If you can make your boss successful and make your subordinates successful, I guarantee you, you will become successful. But if you focus only on yourself to be successful, you will not end up with the results that you really desire. Eh, you'll move forward, maybe you'll stroke yourself a little bit, but you're not going to go as far as you could have gone. And I learned that lesson early on. It paved the, the way for me. And spiritually, that's what every one of us should be learning concerning the Lord, is pour your life into the benefit of others, the Lord and to your other brethren, and stop worrying about yourself. And that's what he was trying to teach to the disciples um, here at this particular time. Uh, verse 29, And as they were going out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two men, sitting by the road, hearing that Yeshua was passing by, they cried out, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the multitude sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. I think the reason why the crowd, you know, spoke against him was they were trying to do their thing about assisting Yeshua, and they thought that everybody should be quiet, you know, while he's up there doing his thing and while they're is making his way, and he's delaying his trip, and and so they were they're kind of standing in uh, for the Lord, and yet at the same time doing the exact opposite of what they should be doing is because the Lord has a desire to help others. Uh, verse 32, And Yeshua stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? He hears the cries of them, and despite what the mob has said, he turns around and, and separate from the mob that was following, and he says, What can I do for you? Verse 33, And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be open. And moved with compassion, Yeshua touched their eyes. Immediately they gained their sight and followed him. There's, there were some more people that wanted to follow him, and, but they needed help to be able to do it. Let me just say something to you, um, because I've seen this multiple times. If you really have the desire to want to follow the Lord, regardless of your circumstances you're in, your job, whatever the situation, is not going to block you from following the Lord. All you have to do is call upon the Lord and say, Lord, I want to follow you, but I've got these things in the way. I've got these things blocking me. I've got a job that doesn't allow me to keep the Sabbath, but I want to keep your commandments. I want to follow you. 
And, and that's what I've said to people when they come in and they say, well, I'm blocked from this and that and so forth. And I said, well, you need to pray. Ask the Lord, you know, for what it is that you need and He'll help you. And the end result, He wants you to follow Him and He will help you accordingly. Um, so it, immediately they received their sight and they followed Him. All right, we're now ready for chapter 21. They're making their way up from Jerusalem, coming up to Jeris- uh, up from Jericho, I should say, coming up to Jerusalem, and here's what it says now. And when they had approached Jerusalem, had come to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Yeshua sent his two disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her, uh, untie them, bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place, that what was spoken of through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, and the foal of a beast of burden. Now, before I go any further, let's make sure we know exactly where we're at. We are east of Jerusalem coming up from Jericho, which is east of Jerusalem. It comes up to the same elevation as where Jerusalem. And there's a mountain ridge on the east side of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. And just on the east edge of that is a community called Bethany, and there's another one called Bethpage. He comes up into these little communities um, and, and just before he is at the top of the Mount of Olives, you can see Jerusalem and you're, you're on your way in. And he comes to that point and he says to them, he said, now I want you to take a couple of disciples. I want you to go in advance of me. I want you to go into the city and there, you're going to see a, a colt, a donkey that's tied up there. And I want you to untie the donkey and I want you to bring it back to me. And if somebody asks you about what are you doing, you tell them that the Lord has need of it. Um, and that in itself is kind of a miracle. Normally, if a guy came up and he unties some guy's donkey, it looks like he's stealing him. And I would expect the owner to be upset. Now, we don't know who this owner is. Name is never given to us. But somehow or another, the Lord communicated to him in advance, look, um, you know, your donkey you've got, um, I, the Lord, I'm going to be needing that. And when I dispense some men to come up and get your donkey, the answer they're going to give to you is the Lord has need of this. And then you, you're going to share your donkey with me. And you'll get him back later. And so that's basically what happened. And those are like small circumstances of life, you know, in this day um, for this particular man. By the way, all of us have these kind of interesting circumstances. When you're really walking with the Lord and in His will, there's just certain things that will happen in, in a certain way and it will trigger to you, you know, I think the Lord set that up. I think the Lord prepared the path before me. It, it, well, some would say, oh, well, that's just coincidence. Let me just go ahead and tell you, if you're a spiritual person, you know the Lord, you don't have coincidences. The, you believe the Lord is involved with you, He's walking along with you, He's involved in your life. 
and he's paying attention. Um, even when I have frustrating moments and things don't go my way, um, I, I put my, took my wallet out of my pants. I set it somewhere in the house. I couldn't find it. Well, Lord, I need my wallet. Help me. Help me find my wallet. Lo and behold, I go over here. I find it. Thank you, Lord. You know, little circumstances of life. I do it with my phone all the time. You know, and Lord, help me to find my phone. Um, and um, there are other times when uh, I went to, a, I remember this many times, I've gone to a place, the parking lot's full. And all of a sudden I pull up to where I need to get and the best parking spot that could possibly be in that parking lot, which is right exactly where I need to go, is available for me as I come into the parking lot. And I go, thank you, Lord, for preparing that parking place for me. If you begin to pay attention and get a sense of it, you can feel and sense the Lord walking along with you in the day. This man with his donkey was having one of those examples happen to him. Hey, the Lord told me, he said, hey, I'm going to be using your donkey later on a day. Leave it tied up here, and, and when the guys come to get it, they'll say the Lord has need of it. Everything will be fine. You won't have to explain anything. The Lord is involved with us that much in our lives. So they get the donkey, and they go back. And then we have this quote of the Scripture, <clears throat> verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, gentle, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, and the foal of the beast of burden. Now, <clears throat> got a little bit of an interesting question here for you. Okay, this was a prophet, uh, Zechariah, who gave this prophecy. Daniel, when he talked about the coming of the Lord, he had a different prophecy. He talked about in chapter 7 about the Ancient of Days coming riding on a white horse. So we have this prophecy that says riding on a colt, uh, a donkey, and another prophecy that says riding on a horse. So how, how can you have that? Is that, a, is that a mistake? Is Zechariah didn't know what he was talking about? Daniel did? Uh, whatever. It, did, did we get that wrong? No, we didn't get it wrong. It turns out the Lord has two comings. Now, what's fascinating is I'll give you a little Hebrew background story on this. When they have looked at this, these prophecies, and they, they thought there was an interesting variable here. A man who's riding on a donkey is not coming to do warfare. A man who's riding on a donkey is at a much slower pace, able to bear a load, okay? And it's more of at a personal level for transportation. A man who's riding the horse can ride the horse fast, galloping. He can be, he can be used for warfare. So what they said was that when the Messiah comes, if we see him um, riding on a donkey, then it will mean that his coming to us is peaceful not to do warfare, he will be coming to do pleasant things. Well, in this particular case, he's coming to do the work of redemption, to make sacrifice. Now, the riding on the horse part, that's the description of when the Lord comes for the day of the Lord. 
And in the day of the Lord, he's not coming to do the work of redemption. He's coming to do the work of restoration. And by the way, he's going to restore a whole bunch of things and defeat his enemies in the process. And it will be a great victory um, in the form of warfare against his enemies. So that's, that's the reason why those two different prophecies are set there. One is to explain the work of redemption where it's soft and, and personal, whereas the, the work of, of uh, vengeance of God, the day of the Lord, it is one where it's gallantry, it's with, with a charging horse, uh, four armies following him, and, and so forth. And so he's asking for this donkey so that he can send the right message as to how he's entering Jerusalem. He's not entering Jerusalem as a conqueror. By the way, my Jewish brethren... Um, their highest expectation was that he would enter as a conquering fellow. He'd be riding the horse. But they wanted to ignore the prophecy about him riding in as a donkey. Again, they had certain expectations about the Messiah. The Messiah didn't meet their expectations. Instead, what he did was he fulfilled the prophecies. And we need to keep that in mind when we think about the future things of the Lord. He's going to be fulfilling the prophecies not our expectations. <clears throat> let, me, let me just draw the parallel completely here. So in, in the first coming, um, the people of God that were looking for the Messiah, they wanted him to come charging on the horse. And instead, he came on the donkey, humble and lowly. Now, today... There's a lot of believers. We don't want the Lord coming back, you know, for the day of the Lord. We want him to come back and be loving and gather us up. You see the, the, flip, the flip and the flop here. They're not paying attention to the prophecies. They're doing what they want. They're trying to get the Lord to do what they want. And so their expectations are getting in the way of what the prophecies said. Well, let me go ahead and just tell you. The riding on the donkey part is done. There's only one other part right, left, and that's the riding on the horse. And for those of us in this generation, you need to stop thinking about Yeshua coming into Jerusalem in a nice little pleasant way. And you need to start coming to terms with the fact that when he comes to Jerusalem this time, he's going to come as a valiant warrior uh, with the, leading the armies of heaven uh, with him as well. All right, let's continue on. Verse 6, And the disciples went and did just as Yeshua had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid them on their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after him were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when they entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Yeshua from Nazareth in Galilee. Now before we go any further, there's an incredible picture that's taking place here. By the way, a lot of people don't know this, but Zechariah said that the first great celebration of the Messiah coming to establish his kingdom, 
coming into Jerusalem is that we would observe the Feast of Tabernacles. You can read it there in Zechariah 14. And by the way, when you're observing the Feast of Tabernacles, what you do is you go out and you cut leafy branches, myrtle branches and, and palm branches and so forth. And you use them to make sukkahs, to, to make the temporary shelter while you're at the, at the Feast of Tabernacles, a Feast of Tents, if you will, a Feast of Booths. And there is an expression that is used at the Feast of Tabernacles. And you say, Hosanna to the Lord in the highest. Hosanna, which means God save us. And it's a very glorious, rejoicing kind of thing that takes place. So here's these people. Here's Yeshua going up to Jerusalem. By the way, it's springtime. It's not the fall. And here's this people. They think, okay, well, he's going up to establish the kingdom. Now, he told the disciples, no, I'm going up to be arrested and convicted and, and killed and buried. But the people, they don't want to hear that. They, oh, he's going to establish the kingdom now. So here they're, they're remembering what they learned from the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they're cutting these leafy branches and they're saying the same expressions of rejoicing. Um, and uh, the, uh, in fact, Tabernacles are called the season of our joy. And so they're being very joyful and expressive, and they're, everybody's noticing, why are these people all so happy and, and so forth going on here? They're keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, but it's in springtime. Boy, that really shows you how out of kilter they were in their thinking. He's supposed to be going up to be the Lamb of God, but they've already got him at the end of the kingdom, but getting ready to become king. One of the reasons that God insists on us learning how to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and why it's so appropriate for us who are in the last generation to do that is to learn what it is that we're going to do at the first festival of the return of the Messiah. We're going to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And a lot of people have never kept the Feast of Tabernacles. They have no idea quite honestly, how much enjoyment there is in doing it. So they don't have a sense of, of what the, the first celebration of the kingdom is going to be. And Yeshua entered the temple, cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to him, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Now, this incident happened early in Yeshua's ministry. One of the, when he went public, one of the first things he did was he tore the temple up, uh, the same thing. Now, he's coming in now to get ready to do the work of redemption. He does the same thing. And the prophecy said that he would have a zeal for the house of God. This quote here called the house of God comes from Isaiah chapter 58. By the way, if you read the whole prophecy... It specifically talks about that the Gentiles will be welcome in his house. So for those who are thinking, oh, no, this is just for the Jews, you are wrong. Go read what Isaiah had to say. Verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. Uh, this is classic. We are the men of prestige. But this guy is coming in without an announcement to us. We, we didn't set this up. He's in here causing a big stir. Everybody's happy. He's doing all kinds of great and good things, bringing attention to himself. Everybody's paying attention to them. People aren't paying attention to us. They became indignant. This is kind of the final thing here that will cause them to want to arrest and condemn Yeshua. Verse 16, and he said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Yeshua said to them, yes, have you never heard out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast prepared praise for thyself? They're literally going to Yeshua and they're saying, aren't you aware of the fact that the expression they use has to do with the Feast of Tabernacles? They're being overly joyous. It's the wrong feast, blah, blah, blah. You know, these are the people following you. Don't, don't you see what they're doing? You know, and they're, of course, they're inferring that they're making a huge mistake. And Yeshua, in answering them, he said, oh, yeah, sure. But are you aware of the scripture that says how the mouths of infants and babes will come the praises of life, you know, the issues of life? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now in the morning, when he returned to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it, found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples marveled and said, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Yeshua answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And all these things you will ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Basically, Yeshua's answer is because I, I wanted to do so. I, I told the tree to wither. Now let's back up for a little bit and let's cover a couple of key points. Fig trees bear fruit two times a year. In the springtime, they bear a, a smaller fruit and it's not quite as sweet. It's more, more meaty uh, to it, but it, it's nutritious. Uh, in the fall, is when the big figs come out and they're very sweet. And I've been to the land of Israel in the fall when the fig tree, figs come out and boy, everybody on the street, they wanted a fig because it's delicious. Um, and uh, most of us, the closest we've ever gotten to figs is like Fig Newtons, um, you know, the cookie uh, thing that has it, or maybe some date figs and, and things like that, dates, um, and eating that kind of fruit you know, occasionally in certain dishes. Um, so he's looking on this tree and he's looking for the early fruit that's supposed to be, and the tree has none. This tree is green, has leaves, but there's no fruit. And he's hungry. He needed some fruit. He needed something to eat. And when he suddenly discovered the tree is not bearing any fruit whatsoever for him, he curses it. 
and the tree immediately withers and the tree dies. The, um, the disciples, what they're taking note of is how in the world did he do that? Well, he did that by the power of the spiritual power that he had. And he began to speak to them about, you have that same power if you believe God and if you request of God. You can request anything that you need. Even you can request a prayer against something as well as for something. You can request against a fig tree if you want. You can speak for things. So a lot of people will talk, oh, this is about a lesson about prayer. Well, yes, it, it's about prayer. But let me tell you something else that happened here. This tree is over on the Mount of Olives. I believe the crucifixion was on the Mount of Olives. And the way the crucifixion, Roman crucifixion was done in that day, they didn't make a cross that you drug around. They took the cross beam. And that I believe that Yeshua carried the cross beam. And they have to take him out to a very public place, out of the city, and I believe they took him over to the Mount of Olives along the road that was leading into the temple, and they fixed the cross beam to an, a, a dead tree. They hook it to an execution stake. And I think they hooked it up to um, a dead tree. And they put the uh, thieves that were condemned uh, all around him. So they, they, he was on one part of the tree and the others are right beside it. It wasn't three separate crosses. It was three cross beams, but it was only one execution stake, one tree. That was the way the Romans did crucifixion in that day. I think that there, the tree that Yeshua was crucified on was this fig tree that he condemned. So what is really being communicated here? What, what are we really talking about? It's not just the coincidence I want you to take note of. It's the meaning of cursing the tree. Each of us are in this world, and whether we realize it or not, we are here to bear fruit for the kingdom. If you have a full life and you don't bear any fruit for the kingdom, I'll tell you what the judgment's going to be for you. You will not be making it into the kingdom. You will be cursed. And so Yeshua sees this and he shows that. And by the way, Yeshua being executed on that tree was to bear the penalty of our curses because the scripture teaches, cursed is he who hangs on the tree. Yeshua literally prepared the execution tree for him to be hung on. Now we will take up our study uh, here uh, about him being in Jerusalem at verse um, 23 in our next program. And so, shalom to all of you. I look forward to seeing you in the next program.